From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and playlists we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then play you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. This week, we're featuring the musical documentaries of Alan Hall, founder of Falling Tree Productions. Alan first came to our attention when he sent us this back in 2005. That mashup of Bohemian Rhapsody continues for another 12 minutes, and it only gets better. Alan has produced dozens of musical portraits of all styles since then, and they're always delightfully out of the ordinary. Today, we bring you two examples, a sound portrait of Ellie Stone, best known for her role in Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, and the story of Jeff Buckley, a shy musician with a powerhouse of a voice who tragically died at the height of his popularity. Listening to Alan Hall's documentary about Jeff Buckley was the first I'd ever heard of the singer. But now I am totally enthralled. To me, his voice was powerful at a near whisper and a tsunami at full throttle. Here is the grace of Jeff Buckley. I think it was probably around the 27th of December, I got a phone call from one of my flatmates to tell me that there was the sexiest voice she had ever heard on our answer machine of some guy called Jeff who wanted to meet me for lunch. And she said in no uncertain terms, if I didn't meet him, she was going. My name's Steve Abbott. I'm also known as Abbo in the rock and roll world. And I'm looking back on a day 20 years ago when Jeff Buckley was in London on the day of the release of his first EP, Live at Chenay. So I'm Emma Banks and I'm an agent at Creative Artists Agency in London, now. And in yeah, 1993-94, I was a very junior agent at a company called Wasted Talent. How old would I have been? 24? 25? Jeff was staying in the UK over Christmas and we'd been in contact and he said he was going to be around and, you know, could we meet up? I was like, yeah, sure, of course we can. I still had no idea what he looked like at this point. I'd never seen a picture of him, but we agreed to meet and um, he said, I'll be wearing a hat and I look like a musician. So I was waiting at the restaurant and in he walked and it was obvious that he was a rock star. It's a song about a dream. I fed him. He ate duck. I remember that. And we just chatted. We chatted about his life, his family, his music, his aspirations. It's about the music, stupid. It was like, let the music do the talking. I'm Dave Laurie, and I was the manager of Jeff Buckley. 
You know, it was at that point that he said to me he didn't ever want to play any big venues. He wanted to keep it small. He wanted to play bookstores, things like that. That laid down the gauntlet for me. So I was like, okay, if you want small gigs, I'm going to find you small gigs. It just was a matter of building it one fan at a time. When I'm lying in my bed, the blanket is warm. This body will never be safe from home. Still feel your hair, black ribbons of coal. Touch my skin, keep me whole. We did not push his good looks. We did not push his father at all. We didn't do TV shows. In fact, we turned down Saturday Night Live in America. We turned away soundtracks in movies. I'll tell you what I have got. I've got a tape that he did. When we started, nobody knew who he was and loads of people thought it was rubbish. So Jeff did an interview, I think it was in some truck stop somewhere, that we recorded and we put it on cassette tape and we were going to send it out to people. Hey. That's Gampy? Yeah, that's me. That's you. Yeah. Anything else I can get you right now? Uh, more coke. More coke? Okay. My, my, my fantasy of Europe is very, very romantic. Extremely. Because it's the old country, you know. It's where most Americans descend from. You know, or Europe is white, is white America's roots. He really wanted to go overseas. He said a few times that it was an escapism. He could just go up on stage. He could walk down the street. He could, you know, enjoy the different cultures. Like, it's not hard to put across the concept of a guy singing in a pub. As it is, like, people were shocked that I came into their coffee houses. People were shocked that I came into their cafes and sang. Like, wow, I didn't... How is everything so far? It's great so far. Good. So this is however old it is, now 20 years old. I do sometimes listen to it. I do have that. Being on the road is, it's a, for me... And every single performance, it's new. Every performance will be new to the day I die because people are completely different from day to day. And being on the road is so romantic. The day started having breakfast, uh, Jeff and my family. Uh, it was brilliant, uh, mimicking anything, not just music. And I remember he kept my daughter Hope very much amused with his Disney impressions. We had a photo shoot with Kevin Westerberg at midday. We had a GLR session at three o'clock in the afternoon. And that night he had his first proper London gig at Bunge's Folk Club in Soho. I'm Kevin Westerberg, photographer at large. And I'm uh, digging out the old photos from March 18th, 1994, which was my one and only proper photo shoot with him. I developed man love for him quite quickly there's something so perfectly structured about his face that it was important to kind of create this sort of mood. I haven't looked at these in a while, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's some great stuff of him on the sofa with a kind of Kafkan Indian drape over it. When he got the guitar in his hand, then he started actually playing and uh, he started to become even more himself. I think he's kind of uh, cradling the guitar there and actually nurturing it, maybe. <laughs> when I met him that 
Christmas, he'd been given the numbers of the people at Sony in the UK to see if maybe they'd like to meet him, and not one of them returned his phone call. The history gets rewritten, and I think all the way up to that sort of, you know, that March trip, loads of people didn't get it, loads of people didn't understand it. So when I saw Jeff play live with just a guitar and see him, and this was New York, and just silence an audience, you could hear a pin drop. I've never seen an artist do that before. So just putting him up there naked on a stage with a guitar and let that voice, it was so fun on that first tour just watching people just, their jaws drop. They'd be reading a book and I'll look up and they're going, oh my God, you know, it was that way. There were a little bunch of us that were believers but it only took a few of us to be really passionate to get the word out. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff was on a bit of a high after the photo shoot. We were on our way to GLR radio. This was the first day that Jeff's record was out. To say he was excited was an understatement. You know, he had a lot to say, really, and this was his first proper British interview. But unfortunately, on this day, there was really bad traffic due to a crash in Baker Street. So to pass away the time, I said to Jeff, this isn't the program that you're about to go and do. And, and that was really a big mistake because as soon as we turned it on, the DJ was front announcing Jeff's performance by mentioning in that she had Tim Buckley's son coming into a session. She didn't even mention the word Jeff. Everything was Tim Buckley's son, Tim Buckley's son. Jeff eventually lost his rag and wearing those big black boots, kicked the radio. And the face of the radio literally split in two. And it was, it was shocking for me because this very quiet, introverted musician that I got to know over the last few weeks, I suddenly saw a whole different side to him. And I didn't really understand their relationship with his dad and the complication of that. And we both went silent. As soon as we walked in, the producer said, ah, so you've bothered to turn up. The irony of this was GLR had all these traffic reports talking about Baker Street so they would have known why we were late. So we walked in in this very, very frosty atmosphere and I saw them push the record button to tape the session. And Jeff was, I don't want it taped. I don't want to be here. And he wanted to walk out. Of course, it was only a bit of an artistic strop. Well, we're really happy to say that Jeff Buckley uh, has managed to get here. A bit of a problem with the traffic, I think, which I think everyone can identify um, who lives in London. Uh, Jeff has uh, just finished his first album, Live at Chinay, and uh, he joins me in the studio now. Hello. Hey. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, you're signed to uh, Big Cat Records. And Jeff sat there almost sulking, and I still wasn't sure that he was going to play. Anyway, he answered the usual questions, very sort of tautly and without much grace, to use a pun. There's no rules but yours. You know. I suppose the, uh, the, the way to do it is not to be afraid of the record company because I suppose if they say we want you to do this and you say no, there must be a certain amount of fear that you think, oh, they, they might ditch me. They have their opinions, but I'm the one that makes the work, so... Is that quite unusual, do you think? No, it shouldn't be unusual. But the people I'm with are pretty cool. I mean, I like them. I think you're very lucky. OK, what are you going to play for me? Uh, a song. called Grace.
Jeff just naturally had that it factor. He walked into a room and it just lit up. His personality, his aloofness. We used to have a saying that if you're trying to talk to a woman, you would grab a Jeff Buckley Grace record and you would say, here's what I mean to say. <laughs> and he was different to most artists at the time. It was very uncool at the time to talk about influences. Jeff wore his influences on his sleeve. You knew that his favorite artist was Liz Fraser of Cocteau Twins. You knew that his favorite guitarist was Jimmy Page. What people don't realize about Jeff Buckley, he was a really great guitar player. And it set its sights on people like Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, who had a spiritual element to the music, that they reached a place with their music. And actually that performance of Grace at GLR was probably the closest I ever saw him reaching that place. His voice would just do it to you. How to work a room in the sense with his voice. There was just this rawness that just would come out of him. Something about his childhood. I only asked once and he said I really don't want to get into it. I think there was this shy kid who held his emotions inside, and I think music was his only outlet to let that out. This was Jeff Buckley, for the first time, really making an impression. And he just went for it. believe it sustained it. I was expecting his voice to go or him to lose his way on the guitar, but it didn't. It just built and built and built. The DJ's chin hit the table. She was so awestruck. And I feel
That's a, a real sort of emotional roller coaster there. That's uh, Jeff Buckley live in the studio and a number called uh, Grace. Musically in the song, I mean, it's just so varied. I mean, there's everything in there. And it's obviously a real performance for him. He looked quite exhausted at the end of the song. No, I, get, I was just getting a lot of anger out. Yeah. Something happened on the way. So you're sort of screaming your anger out. And for him, as soon as he finished the song, you could feel a whole wave of release sort of pass over his shoulders and head into the studio. And everybody just went, oh, wow. Uh, one thing that comes out very clearly from that is that you have a massive vocal range. Oh, thank you. I mean, did you have to work on that, or was it just natural? Ever since I was a kid, I had a pretty um, high voice. Like, people would come up to the house and think I was my mother. <laughs> and I got very self-conscious about that, so I would do things, you know, whiskey <laughs> and uh, stuff. It was always very musical. I mean, it was basically just me and my mom. What kind of stuff were you listening to when you were sort of growing up? When I was up? a kid? Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, I knew, like, a bunch of, like, Spanish children's songs, like, Mi mano y colindo y blanco, yo, and all that, you know. And then growing up, like, all the pop at the time was pretty stinking awesome. You know, like, uh, Stevie Wonder and the Doobie Brothers and Joni, lots of tons and tons and tons and tons of Joni Mitchell. With women musicians, be it Marion Faithful, Chrissy Hind, um, Debbie Harry, these were all people that he gravitated to. Liz Frazier, he loved women, um, or he wanted to be loved by women. It might be more what I'm talking about, and I think that's evident when you listen to Grace. You hear this voice that's just wanting to be accepted. There was something just so endearing about Jeff. I think if he got you and if he felt a connection, you, you got all of him quite quickly. My whole philosophy or my whole discovery is that every emotion has a sound to it, you know. So I just don't want to be kept uh, away from anything I want to say. And I remember my daughter Hope, who was... She came to a couple of the dates with me at the time and she was about two and a half, three years old. And Jeff actually sat her on stage so she sat underneath him Sunday lunchtime in Hitchin and he actually bent down once and asked her what song she would like and she said Colours of the Wind from Pocahontas and he sung it <laughs> we played a pub in Hitchin which I think was called The Sun my parents live quite close to Hitchin and so I said to my mum and dad well, you know why don't you come you can see this artist I think he's amazing he loved the idea of family and of closeness and of being nurtured. She is the tear that hangs inside my soul forever. the first act that I think my parents really liked and that made a difference and my mum and Jeff got really close she would come to gigs occasionally I remember we played at the Cambridge Junction I turned up and the first thing Jeff went was where's mum and he referred to my mother as mum
there. Jeff Buckley is in the studio with me, and that was uh, Lover, You Should Have Come Over. That was really fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you ever so much for coming, and I've oh, really thanks, enjoyed thanks that. For having me. It's fantastic. Um, if you missed Jeff last night at the garage, you can see him tonight at Bungie's, and uh, I just think you should get down there because it was. At Bungie's. Bungie's, yes. Look forward to that, aren't Jump on over. <laughs> GLR presents live. So we're in bungees. It was an arch under. It must. I assume it would have been under a music shop. It's not there anymore. It's a bomb shelter. It has a domed roof made of brick. It was tiny. It was 80 capacity, probably. And there was a whole line of people going down the block. It sold out very, very quickly. I mean, we're talking three, four, five blocks. And it wasn't just single file. It was three or four deep. There was as many people, if not more, standing outside the gig than there were in the gig. Well, Jeff immediately sent me out for roses. So I got like 50, 60 roses. And he passed them out to everybody in the audience. I suddenly wondered whether we could do another show. Well, Emma Banks said, I'm going to leave. This was about halfway through the set. I'm going to go down and book another show. The old forge, I mean, it was literally 10 minutes, five minutes away, went up there, walked in to a completely empty venue. And I went up to them and I said, I've got an artist that has sold out down the road and he would sell out again here tonight. Would it be possible for us to play here? And then it was pretty much like Pied Piper. Walked up Charing Cross Road with just a, a whole bunch of people behind me as we did a little procession. We walked exactly this route up to the 12 Bar Club. When we turned onto Denmark Street following Jeff and Emma, of course, this is like the, the hub of English creativity back in the day. And it wasn't lost on Jeff, of course, because he was carrying his own guitar, his Fender Strat. But of course, he was very distracted by all the guitar shops and everything in the window. Everyone went in. Jeff set up, said, I love it. It's a really great space. And Jeff started playing and pretty much didn't stop. Jeff, because he just loved to play, just kept playing, just kept playing, just kept playing, just kept playing. It was one of those remarkable gigs that goes down in folklore, I suppose. You knew sitting there that you were actually witnessing history. I've never done it again, but I've probably never had another artist that's like Jeff Buckley, so sometimes things really are a one-off. This is my first visit back to the balcony of the 12 Bar Club. The balcony is really rickety. You've got inscriptions uh, on the wood beams, the forge, which was the name of the club before it became the 12 Bar. He played for about two hours and amazingly, he didn't play a single song that he'd played down at Bungie's earlier. Jeff, for the first time, to, to me, showed what I would unreservedly call genius, especially in rock terms. He went from Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, fantastic version of Musty Musty by Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, and then he really dropped down and he did the most amazing version, and it's the first time I ever heard him sing it. A Satisfied Mind, a great Mahalia Jackson song. The last couple of lines actually became quite prophetic, of course, eventually, and the song was played as the last part of his funeral in Brooklyn. Mostly, it's an independent life. It's a very independent life, and it's a life that demands that you be open and demands that you take responsibility, you know, or suffer the hazards. But when my life is over and my time has run out, my friends and my lovers, I will leave, there's no doubt. 
But one thing's for certain, when it comes my time, I'll leave this old world with a satisfied mind. In Los Angeles, when Jeff was doing his solo tour, this was about a week and a half in, I had a lung collapse. And I remember Jeff coming up to the hospital. He was white as a ghost. He walked in to my hospital room and I asked him what was wrong. And he said, are you gonna leave me too? I said, what do you mean leave you too? And I'm just remembering this now. He said, everybody in my life leaves me. He had a vulnerability about him and an honesty about him. That made you want to take and cradle him and protect him even more. He was complicated and troubled a lot of the time and unhappy some of the time. And it's weird because it wasn't really very long a time that I knew him, but it feels like it was forever. Music exists by itself. Music isn't really mine. Just like, you know, the air isn't mine. I don't own it. It's free. And the people have a direct relationship with it. To the extent that they're open to it, it can flow through them and help them or hurt them. The phone rang at 6.30 in my room and I'm a pretty sound sleeper. And it was my assistant, Jack Bookbinder, who said he's missing. And I said, who's missing? He said, Jeff's missing in the Mississippi River. We think he drowned. And then, yeah, the bombshell hit. Oh, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. I mean, I could, I could cry now just thinking about it. I really could. So we did a press release saying he died, drowned, got a quote from his mom, sent the band home because the press was just all over the house. Time Magazine, Newsweek. You know, it, this was going beyond music. You know, the big story of Jeff dies of drug overdose, like Tim, is all flying around. You know, the, we had so many plans, and, and he had so many plans, and he seemed to be in a good place. You know, we sort of had a conversation that maybe I'd go over a few weeks later and listen to some music, hang out, whatever. I then went to the river for the first time. Been there a couple of days, went to the river with Keith Fody, and I said, walk me through what happened. Told me I went out into the river, tugboat came by, he went under, then another tugboat went by, and then he never saw him again. And I said, give me 15 minutes. I sat there and bawled like a baby for 15 minutes. And then I got mad at him for leaving me with that pile of shit. not an easy way to lose somebody and and it's hard to believe that it happened I'm blessed to have worked with him and it went away 
too soon. The Grace of Jeff Buckley was produced by Alan Hall for Falling Tree Productions and BBC Radio 4. Check out our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, to hear lots of additional work by Alan Hall, plus thousands of other great audio stories for your listening pleasure. Coming up after the break, the music of Ellie Stone, the tremulous singer now in her 80s. Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're listening to musician portraits by the British producer Alan Hall. Now, to me, Ellie Stone's voice is like a stream of clear water just floating by. I loved all games and fairy tales. She began her career in the 50s and was best known for her role in the original cast of Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, which began off-Broadway in 1968 and went on to Broadway, television, and film. When I was growing up, we played that LP often in my house and went to see the show when it came through Chicago in the early 70s. I'd never heard music like Brel's or heard a voice like Ellie's. Now I'm only too happy to be reunited with her crystalline sound. Hi. Hello. I hope you weren't getting too I'm anxious. Alan. Hi, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. But, but I, the, there was a delay in the train. The voices of Ellie Stone. Uh, there go, the recording engineer here. This Welcome is a story from off Broadway. Would you like it? Yeah. Broadway, 40 years ago. Oh, that's wonderful. Do you want to have soy milk, do you? It's a story oh shared between the singer, Ellie Stone, and the songs of Jacques Brel. Just see how it is. And then, and then the idea will be ultimately to cut it in with you know, musical illustration and just to kind of build a picture of oh, all right. you and Brel. And anyway. Yeah. <laughs> a life in song. I really feel like I'm back in the business again. And it's a story shared also with listeners like me who fell under the spell of a most distinctive voice. You really want me to get that close? Yes. The tremulous voice of Ellie Stone. The <laughs> <laughs> closer you are, the more sympathetic you'll be, the more people will love you. The what? The, the closer I am? Yeah, the closer, more sympathetic you'll sound. Yeah. Oh, oh, in other words, the more distant I am, the more distant I sound. Yeah. So we want to be... All right. We want to be close to you. Are you running? I'm Ellie Stone. I was a singer. I'm part of the continuum of um, showbiz. (laughs) I'm going to be 88. And um, I was happy to get out of it. I was in my late 60s when I decided that was the end of it. My mid-60s, actually. But... um, No, I was happy to not sing. The old folks don't talk much. The old folks don't talk much. And they talk so slowly when they do. They are rich, they are poor. Their illusions are gone. They share one heart for two. Their homes all smell of time, 
of old photographs and an old-fashioned song. Though you may live in town, you live so far away when you've lived too long, etc. The old folks never die. They just put down their heads and go to sleep one day. They hold each other's hand like children in the dark. But one will get lost anyway. Old folks, for me, I felt that as an actor, the only way I could approach that was just very coldly. Uh, to put pity into it is would be awful, and this is really where one can miss on that one. You'll see them when they walk through the sun-filled parks with children run and play. It hurts too much to smile. It hurts too much, but life goes on for still another day as they try to escape. It's, it's a very uh, wrenching song, but it has to be, it's only wrenching if it's done coldly. Otherwise, you can die of treacle poisoning. That waits for us My father, when he came to, to see it, he said, I never want to see the show again. Old folks just, just depressed me very, very much. Singing, I think, was probably the only place where I was able to express my feelings. I was very, very tied up, very... Um, I, people used to call me alienated. But that was the only place where I could open my heart. My singing was truthful. I mean, this is what I like to think. I was always trying to be truthful in my singing. I asked my husband, Eric, Eric Blau, what people saw when I stood on stage, what they responded to, because I had no idea. And he said, uh, he said, oh, I don't remember. He said, triumphal desperation. <laughs> so my childhood goes on the wind of the silence of memory's tree. The true make believe Winter snow made of diamonds on the window And yes, I was desperate most most of my life and you know I felt I was always falling apart but I did I did forge ahead. Save my warrior. 
so my childhood goes in the steam of the cooking I dream of Charlotte Russes and other truths. And now my childhood, I don't know what to say about my childhood. It's, it's so heartrending. I mean, I was reliving that loneliness, that sense of total alienation from everything around you, that sense of powerlessness. So I block off my head. I pretend I'm a bird that's unseen and unheard. I have not said a word. I might ride a train. You can't talk about a song, but you have to hear it. It's bedtime again. I was just a mess. Uh, I'm not going to go into my childhood. <laughs> I could talk about singing forever. Not about me, but I could talk about singing. Can we just go back? Could you define the kind of voice that you, you realized that you had? I had a voice that was much more mature than I thought I should have from my age. I was a little embarrassed by it. When I was young, it's almost as if I had big bosoms at the age of 10, which I didn't, of course. But that's the way the voice sounded to me. That's the way I perceived it. And at that age, I really wanted to be for the rest of my life a Wagnerian and never made it to Wagnerianhood. <laughs> at the age of 13, it had developed into a coloratura, not even a lyric coloratura. So it developed into the smallest of voices, the smallest of instruments. So at the age of uh, 13, in my junior high, I wanted to try out for the High School of Music and Art. I was in the chorus, and the music teacher there took me home to her sister, who was a voice teacher, and she took me home to Lillian Strongen, who then became my voice teacher. And she was my teacher, and she was more than my teacher. She was my mentor. She's the most important person in my life. She gave me the kind of unconditional acceptance that uh, many kids never get, and I didn't get it as a kid. A childhood explodes. Everything up until the age of 17 was in Brooklyn. After 17, my life was Manhattan and the world. There was the first boy, the first boy that I knew, and the first touch of flesh. It was a life, it was a got married at 17 and got divorced shortly after. <laughs> I know, it sounds funny. But I just wanted to get out of the house. 
in those days, uh, it was kind of glamorous to be divorcee. So I said, if I get married, then I can get divorced and I'll be glamorous. I mean, remember, the movies were full of glamorous divorcees. So Eric Blau, the poet, was your second husband. Yes. I, Marik, Marik, the Flanders sun burns the sky since you are gone. I, Marik, Marik, in Flanders field, the poppies die since you are gone. When Eric was translating Marika, it was my idea that we keep the chorus in Flemish. It just rolled off the tongue so. It just seemed right. And, and there was something so big about it, you know, that something so large that I felt that keeping it in the original language kept the mystery that I felt it had. It's about love. It's about love and loss, which most songs are about. But there's love and loss, and there's love and loss. And the size of the love and loss really has to do, always to do with the talent of the artist, uh, the composer, lyricist. career, nobody broke down the doors. I have to say that I was not a careerist, really. I, I was always ambivalent about ambition. I was always ambivalent about music, always ambivalent about singing. So I never really pursued it. In a sense, it pursued me. And people were always intrigued with my voice, but there was never they never knew what to do with me commercially. My voice didn't fit anywhere, but it was, it, it, it did capture people's imagination. Timid Frida, will they greet her on the street where young strangers travel on magic carpets floating lightly in beaded caravans? I was always timid. I was the most timid person in the world. I was so shy that I, I couldn't even look at anybody straight in the eye. I was unbelievably shy. I'm shy! won't return love to the home where they do not need her but always feed her little lessons and platitudes from cans. You had a singing teacher who was important in your life. Eric. Yes. Clearly important figure in your life. Yes, yes. Jacques Brel. Yes. Where does he come in? Eric had a friend at Columbia Records 
His name was Nat Shapiro, and he was the head of international A&R. And we were up visiting him at one point, and he played Brel for us. And I went ape, and I said, Eric, and Eric was a poet, you know. And I said, Eric, would you please translate some of these lyrics for me? And he did. And then we met Mort Schumann. He wrote The Last Dance for me. He was also crazy about Brel, because Mort had gone to Paris long before and got to know Brel. I mean, he sort of <laughs> kneeled at the shrine. These were songs that had so much meat in them. There is not a song that is not about something that is very crucial to life. And he was also, he had a very jaundiced eye. And he spoke on, on so much, on hypocrisy, on venality, on vanity, on all, all these things. Uh, I find it very hard to discuss some what's great in something that's great. It's like trying to punch a cloud. You can't. It's very hard for me anyway. And Eric and Mort and I decided that somehow this body of music must reach the American public. And then we decided the only way to do it is to turn it into, to take this body of work, turn it into a show. And in those days, there was word about Hitler. And they were saying Hitler's alive and well and and living in Argentina, or Hitler's alive and well and living there, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, well, Jacques Brel's alive and well and living in Paris. (laughs) That's how the Brel show came about. Fantastic. We need to stop now here. Okay. Can we go for tea? Yes. You are magnificent. Oh, thank you. I'm so unused to being interviewed. (laughs) This is my last supper. Please come and eat with me. I want all my old There we are. Reservations, please. You'll all know one another, except blacks and Chinese. Isn't this nice? And no, I'm not up on those walls. <laughs> I am not a Broadway legend. In those days, of course, they would seat you. The bigger you were, the further front you'd, you'd want to, you'd want to be, so that you could be seen. You could see people as they came in, and they could see you. But I always asked for the back. I, I, li- I wanted to be alone. I really wanted to be with my, my friends. That was about it, and I would meet people for lunch here. And it was very nice. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. What is that? Grab cake. Oh, good. Okay. So powerlessness, finish the thought, just that thought. Okay, yeah. that's, so I lived, I lived with wall-to-wall anxiety. 
I lived really, my life revolved around a fulcrum of anxiety. And that was it. And I never even knew that because I was always anxious, so how do you know what it means to not be anxious? It's very good. It's a crab cake. I didn't know what he was telling me, frankly. I said, I want something no, no, light, light, but... And he said something. I didn't understand his accent, but it's good. Here I am back in the studio. It was called La Valse Milton, the Waltz of a Thousand Beats. Perel wrote it as a commentary on, he was a Belgian, and life there. You, know, you grow up and this is what middle class life is like, and, and it goes crazier and crazier and crazier. And Eric, he managed to create that sense of the craziness of life through, through the medium of the carnival and what happens to life that starts out innocently enough and then ends up with insanity. I was 58, and I was, speaking of desperate, I was walking down Broadway and saying, I'm going to now wish myself to die. And I had done that many, many times in the past, but this time I really meant it, and I got scared because I felt something click. I felt I'd said something into motion, and I felt something click. And then I realized I had to do something. So that weekend, I did an LSD therapy session. And that was the beginning of who I am now. I would say that that was, you know, when I for, for did my first session, actually the first session was not LSD, it was MDMA. Are we legal here? <laughs> MDMA, what they call ecstasy. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. In spite of all, we're still together So many years of smiles and tears In spite of all, we're still together So many years of smiles and tears How many times we'd part forever And I would leave for parts unknown a day, a week, and I'd feel terror and crumble on the telephone. Then in bed we'd play confessions and tell the truth what truth we knew. That's how it's been with me and you. Then start upon a new digression. That's one of the songs where Jacques said that Eric bested him. Those lyrics were, he felt superior to his. 
for just bearing with me and, and you know <sighs> excuse me what happens when you get old is that <laughs> what happens when you get old is you have nothing to lose anyway <laughs> so all right you sounded great good that way it goes uptown yeah so this is your city this is my city born and dragged up here okay can you take us to uh let's say broadway and 44th we can get off at 43rd how's 43rd that and broadway yes okay thank you uh oh Wait a second. This doesn't want to turn off. I, I wanted to turn it off. I guess we can't. We can't. That is a great song, Song for a Lovers, isn't it? I, I love the last, the last one, you know, the, the, the last one. And sometimes we were almost happy, and sometimes we would almost touch. I think we... And sometimes we were almost happy, and sometimes we would almost touch. I think we, I think we wanted very little, but that always seemed too much. And did we say we wanted children? I really cannot quite... I really cannot quite uh, recall, yeah. What we wanted was a, a freedom to laugh, to dance, to have a ball. And sometimes we were almost open And sometimes we would almost touch Eric was quite an interesting poet. I think we wanted very 
I think his poetry was the best of his writing. But that always seemed too much. Anyway, dear. And did we say we wanted children? I really And did we say we wanted children? I really cannot quite recall. What we wanted was our freedom. To dance through life, to have a ball. We are just surrealist pilgrims melting clocks in marble holes. I'm still touched by those lines. The Voices of Ellie Stone. Produced by Alan Hall for Falling Tree Productions and BBC Radio 4. The Voices of Ellie Stone won the prestigious 2015 Pre-Europa Award for Best European Radio Music Program. Congratulations, Alan. For links to more of his work or music by Ellie Stone and Jeff Buckley, who we featured in the first half of the hour, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. 